Take a moment and picture the continent of Africa before the 15th century, something we're going to call pre-colonial Africa. What images come to mind? Perhaps you picture the Nile River, the sands of the Sahara Desert, or maybe wildebeests and lions roaming the Serengeti. What sounds do you hear? The heartbeat of African drums, perhaps? The languages of Yoruba or Fula rolling off the tongues of native speakers? And what about cities? Are there libraries, centers of immense wealth and learning? How do you picture pre-colonial Africa? This is a production by WUFT News. I'm your host, Gabriella Paul. In episode one, we'll go back in time to offer the undertold stories of African influence from ancient civilizations on the African continent to acts of resistance during the transatlantic slave trade, all in an effort to evoke the complexity of black lives in Florida. This podcast is the result of ongoing conversations with K-12 teachers, university scholars, and community leaders in Alachua and Marion counties. The seven-part series is made possible by a Florida Humanities Broadcasting Hope grant. In West Africa, more than 2,000 miles inland from the coast, on the southern edge of the Sahara Desert, lies the ancient city of Timbuktu. We now know that Timbuktu was a major center for learning. Robin Pointer is a retired emeritus professor at the University of Florida's Department of Art History. He studied African art, history, and culture for more than 50 years. One of the oldest universities in the world was at Timbuktu. Some of the oldest libraries in the world that still exist are in Timbuktu. There are books that are centuries and centuries old that are stored in libraries in Timbuktu. Pointer says centers of learning established in pre-colonial West Africa were some of the largest in the world. This goes against some popular notions that people in Africa urbanized only after contact with Arab nations or later Europeans. Turbato Marabou is a storyteller, musician, and doctoral student focused on the black aesthetic. He's also a former Alachua County teacher. Well, of course, when they came, when the Europeans came, they were, they were all taken back. When they first went to the Kingdom of Benin and the Congo, and you know, the streets are straight as far as the eye can see. The level of the level of intricacy in terms of the architecture. There were people teaching. There were teachers, right? But there were also doctors. There were also architects. There were also engineers. There were there were there was a society. African empires also established trade routes and experienced great wealth, dating back even to 250. BCE. The ancient African civilization of Jene in present-day Mali is one of few urban ancient civilizations in human history. 
the city traded fish, grains, copper, and metals with the nearby cities of Timbuktu and Gao. Centuries later, Jene would become a major trade post in the trans-Saharan gold trade. It was this abundance of trade, especially that of gold in the Kingdom of Ghana and later the Mali Empire, that spurred a new chapter in global exploration, both by attracting European explorers to the African continent and by financing legendary excursions by wealthy African rulers. At the turn of the 13th century, the Kingdom of Ghana was taken over by the Mali Empire, giving the present-day country its name. Now, its most famous sultan was Mansa Musa, who took power in 1312, after his brother, Abubakar II, gave up the throne to explore the limits of the Atlantic Ocean. At this time in history, an explorer had yet to circumnavigate the globe, but it was understood, in the Middle East, unlike in Europe, that the Earth was round, thanks to the work of Arab geographers like al-Masudi. There were many maps, there were many Moorish maps and Islamic maps that showed the actual circumnavigation of the planet. Turbato Marabu is an artist and educator in Alachua County. He describes how this technology motivated Abubakar's travels. And so his scientific spirit uh, it motivated him to build like a thousand ships. Though the details of his voyage are still debated by scholars, there is a surviving record where Mansa Musa details his brother's excursions. The account is voiced here by Jude Sue, a junior at Eastside High School in Gainesville. The king, who was my predecessor, did not believe that it was impossible to discover the furthest limit of the Atlantic Ocean, and was vehemently to do so. So, he equipped 200 ships filled with men, and the same number equipped with gold, water, and provisions enough to last them for years. The fleet of Mali ships set sail. They departed, and a long time passed before anyone came back. Then, one ship returned, and we asked the captain, what news they brought? He said, yes, old Sultan, we've traveled for a long time until there appeared in an open sea, a river with a powerful current. The other ship went on ahead, but when they reached the place, they did not return. As for me, I went about at once and did not enter that river. Deterred by the strong ocean current, he turned around to report to Abubakar II. Then, that sultan got ready. 2,000 ships, 1,000 for himself and the men whom he took with him, and 1,000 for water and provisions. He left me to deputize for him and embarked on the Atlantic Ocean with his men. So he readied his men and his ships to join the next expedition, himself. That was the last we saw of him and all those were with him. And so, I became king in my own right. Some historians believe Abubakar II may have landed in the Americas more than a century before Christopher Columbus set sail in 1492. Importantly, Marabou says exploration led by wealthy African rulers over sea and on land unlike colonial explorations, weren't based on conquest. It wasn't military expansion. It was scientific exploration. It was like, you know, it was like Africa Star Trek kind of thing, you know? It was like, you know, we're, we're just here to explore. We're not here to 
to exploit you. We're here to exchange ideas, exchange of culture. Dr. Amanda Concha-Holmes is an anthropologist and a humanities scholar at the University of Florida. She highlights the reputation these explorations created for the Mali Empire. To be able to even like conceptualize, right, that actually the first African explorers in the 1300s were wealthy, uh, highly advanced in in many ways, um, and were, you know, bringing gold and salt. And the importance of beginning the history of African migration here, rather than with slavery and the transatlantic slave trade. And really has a very different conception, obviously, than only visualizing the the first Africans that have come here to be enslaved individuals, right? In his book published in 2021, author Howard French writes that predating what's known as the Age of Discovery was actually a race for European nations to establish ties with famously rich African empires. This is why in the 14th century, these places began appearing on European maps. One famous medieval map known as the Catalan Atlas depicts the Mali Empire with Mansa Musa on his throne, a wealthy black king wearing a crown of gold and holding a golden scepter. follows this in the 15th century are popular European adventurers who set sail. This is when explorers like Bartolomeu Diaz, Christopher Columbus, and Ferdinand Magellan enter the world's stage of sea exploration. Famous in Florida's history, Juan Ponce de Leon landed near St. Augustine in 1513 to claim La Florida. But Robin Pointer says there are two men often left out of that story too. There were at least one person who certainly was of African descent named Juan Jarido, uh, and, and then uh, Juan González Ponce de Leon conceivably could have been of African descent. Pointer's book, Africa in Florida, 500 Years of African Presence in the Sunshine State, celebrates the 500-year anniversary of Spain's expedition in 1513. We knew that 2013, there was going to be a great deal of celebration about Juan Ponce de Leon celebrating 500 years of European presence in Florida. And we said, hey, at the same time that Europeans touched the soil of Florida, there were people of African descent. This is one historical moment of contact between Africa and Florida a connection that would be reinforced over the next 300 years during the transatlantic slave trade. Dr. Rick Stevenson is a professor of African-American studies at the University of Florida, who specializes in resistance during the Middle Passage, which is a leg of the transatlantic slave trade during which millions of Africans were transported to the Americas. Yeah, uh, for, a lot of, for a lot of us, we, we've just been taught that it was just a trip. We don't realize that out of about 35,000 voyages, there are about 5,000 ships 
at the bottom of the ocean. We don't take into account how many people literally died at sea. Uh, and so those numbers are important. One of those ships is the Guerrero. It sunk off the coast of Key Largo in 1827. You know, what's interesting um, about the Guerrero is it was a Spanish ship that was stolen. A lot of those ships uh, that would leave Africa would be kidnapped at sea. That's one of the reasons why we have the Coast Guard. Stevenson explains that we know this in great detail because of the firsthand documentation that exists from the slave ships. And what a lot of people don't know about slave ships is after the mid-1700s, many of them had carpenters, they had um, uh, surgeons on the ships because the carpenters reconfigured the ship every time you changed the cargo. The surgeons were the ones who dictated or who took who documented how people lived or died at sea. One of the reasons for that was because of insurance. He says historically, companies like Nautilus, now known as New York Life, sold insurance policies on enslaved persons' lives. They created a clause called the pearls at sea. And so if a person died because of one of the pearls, i.e. insurrection, self-murder, then, then the merchant could collect the insurance. The Perils at Sea Clause was employed most notably on the Zong, a slaving vessel from Liverpool, England. Captain Luke Collingwood had 440 slaves on board when he took a wrong turn. He was running low on food and water, and he didn't think he could make it to his destination with his cargo. He figured, I have 130, 132 Africans that are not marketable. I can't sell them. They're probably not going to make it. I'll just throw them overboard because I missed my turn at Jamaica. I'm running out of water. I'm not going to get the money for them. But if I get back to England and say they were part of the pearls at sea, I'll collect the insurance. So he does that. And then when he gets back and he goes to court, they realize that's not what happened at all. He killed those people. Reports of the Zong massacre gained publicity and eventually fueled conversations about abolishing slavery in Britain in the 18th and 19th centuries. The third thing we learned that is really important, I think, is the psychology and the psychosis that took place on the part of the enslaved person because many of these people came from the interior. On the nearly 35,000 voyages that departed from the west coast of Africa, a number of different ethnic groups were represented. Stevenson says most times, people couldn't even speak to one another. They'd never been at sea. They've been around water, like rivers, but not something like that. And so throughout the documents of these surgeons, you, you find this term called melancholy. We would call that depression. But some of these people also had strong spirituality and religious beliefs, or cosmologies. And the assumption was that many of these Africans had no concept beyond the physical, when in fact they had a very sophisticated cosmology. They also had a concept that, that your existence did not cease because your physical body no longer functioned. This was especially true of the Igbo, 
an ethnic group from modern-day Nigeria that believed if they died in the water, their spirits would return to Africa. There's a place called Duncansville. It's off the coast of Georgia. And there's a landing called Ebo's Landing, where 180 Ebo warriors overtake a slave ship once it gets here. They kill the crew, sink the ship, and the story goes that they walk into the water singing songs of Africa and drown themselves. This is a moment in history that Stevenson said should be understood as a significant act of resistance against slavery. Take me to the water to be born again, black bone into blue liquid. That's Alachua County's poet laureate Stanley Richardson reading an excerpt from his poem, The Rebirth of Us. Take me to the water where forefathers howl and queen mothers shout and the undrowned scream, waves and current, where spirit waters rage. Take me to the water the telling water, to be born again deep beneath starshine and moon glow. Take me to the water, to be born again knowing. African people moved across the globe throughout history, they brought great knowledge with them, and still do. Knowledge of music, of craftsmanship, of religion, art, and philosophy. Turbato Marabu is a musician in Alachua County who plays various traditional African instruments. This is um, one of those instruments that, in terms of the gourd, that follows human history. Across the continent of Africa, gourds have been used for many purposes. You, you cut it in half, it turns into a bowl, right? You find a way to cap it, it turns into a water container. You cut it, and you, you uh, take the basic, you take the top part of this, it can turn into a horn, right? Um, you take the base again it, and, and place another stick on top with string, it turns into the forerunner to the banjo or the koro. So right, the first, the first banjo is actually made out of a gourd. Much tighter. You can't do it. 
Marabou says you can trace some of America's most popular instruments back to African roots. All of those instruments, um, you know, came from an African, you know, African society, African culture, African musicians. Instruments like the gourd-based banjo, the kora, and the bida, which later inspired the modern-day banjo, the harp, and the piano. Of these, the introduction of gourd-based instruments to American society can be traced back to plantations in the antebellum South. And it's interesting that they, they, they allowed this to stay. They allowed the gourd-based instruments to stay because the, the, the slave owner found it entertaining. But the drum was different. The djembe is a traditional African drum that originated from the class of blacksmiths in western Sudan. They would listen to the deep bellow of the drum to guide their craft. And so they used the drum eventually to keep time. And so eventually it turned into and developed into what we see the djembe is today. And of course the djembe and all those instruments were used in terms of royalty, of calling royalty, and eventually became a part of the intricate part of this society in general. Because there was a language associated with the djembe, it also became a great way to communicate across great distances. So much so that slaveholders would often ban them from plantations in America. You were not allowed to produce a drum. You were not allowed to play a drum. You were not allowed to um, gravitate or gather. What did we do in place of that? Instead, Marabou says, people had to find other ways to secretly communicate. Right? So we had the gourd, we had a guitar, we had, you know, violin, we learned other instruments. But we also had our feet. And we had our hands. And that's what they would do. And they would sing, you know, and they would move around, you know. And, and a lot of these songs were coded songs, you know, coded songs that, that allowed you to know when it was time to run, you know, when it was time, when it was not safe to run. This is one way, through music, that retainment of culture and knowledge took place. But it happened in other ways, too, through art. For example, the South African beadwork uh, that you might see uh, on, the, on the handles of the, we- or the warrior's weapons, or you know, on the horsetail whisk that you see, you see the beadwork. They're actually poems, they're love poems. And they were love poems that the wives and daughters and aunties would make for the warriors before they went into battle. You know, I love you, I care for you, you will come back, you know, these kind of... And so people understood the, co- you know, the, the code. They understood what, these, what the arrangements meant. Art historian Robin Pointer says these art forms were as diverse as the ethnic groups throughout the continent of Africa. The art forms of Africa are amazing in the diversity, in uh, the types of art, in the way that people had visions of working with materials such as wood and ivory and shells and beads and other materials to create sculptural forms, to create architecture. In fact, these art forms were so influential that you can trace back the origins of 20th century European art movements to the African continent. It just 
astoundingly beautiful to see these sorts of things. And the fact that it was African art that was the starting point for so much modern art. The first decade of the 20th century, a great number of artists in places like Germany and France began to go to ethnographic museums and to see examples of African art. And this inspired artists like Matisse, Kandinsky, Picasso, Brock, uh, Van Donegan, uh, so many of them. And it led to uh, artistic movements such as De Bruca, uh, or the, the Blue Rider, uh, Cubism, Fauvism, and so on. And these are all the movements in European art. So it all has its roots in, in African culture. Another space where Africa's influence can be seen today is in examining traditional African philosophies. University ti Florida ire o mo dupe fun gbigbote egbo adura mi ni wipe ari ipa gbogbo akitiyan wa akoro kodele o ase that's kole odutula a yoruba lecturer and practitioner at the university of florida so that's um, just introducing myself you know we all have praise poems and I, I said a little bit of mine and I said I'm a teacher at the University of Florida and I hope that um, all our efforts will yield fruits. He describes a South African philosophy called Ubuntu, an Nguni Bantu term which translates to I am because we are. This contrasts with the ideas of famous European philosophers like Rene Descartes, who puts high emphasis on the individual. I think, therefore I am, rests on the individual. But on the African side, we go to I am because you are. My person, my personhood is linked to yours. We are a complex symphony that have need of each other and are connected. Today, the ancient philosophy has diffused into popular culture on a global scale from international politics to sports. In 1990, Ubuntu was repopularized by Nelson Mandela, South Africa's first president and revolutionary. Years later, Ubuntu became the name of a free and open source operating system, comparable to Windows, Microsoft's operating system. In 2008, the Boston Celtics adopted the philosophy as their team's mantra, something players say helped them win the NBA championship that year. Odutula says we can all learn something about each other and about ourselves from understanding this traditional African worldview. Even if you're non-African, the mere fact that you understand how Africans think helps you to understand how you think. You know, there's something we call metacognition, thinking about thinking. And it is only those 
students in K through 12 that have been empowered to understand the other and develop the skill to interact with people who are not like them in color, in language, and in, and in spirituality. So, has your picture of pre-colonial Africa changed? Maybe, at first, you pictured the bubbling waters of the Nile River or the sands of the Sahara Desert. Now, what do you see? Perhaps you picture the ancient urban landscape of Timbuktu and Jene, or wealthy black sultans traveling by land and sea. Maybe now you have a fuller picture of those who were stolen from their home during the Middle Passage, and the ways that they struggled to preserve their culture and their heritage. Today, African influence on art, religion, music, and language can be traced across the globe. In the Americas, and in Florida. Next time, we'll explore how African culture not only endured, but fused with that of Native American tribes in North Central Florida. This podcast is made possible by a Florida Humanities Broadcasting Hope Grant. It was inspired by a series of community workshops called Decolonizing Representations, led by Dr. Amanda Concha Holmes, who also serves as a director of this grant. A special thanks to all of the experts and community members who contributed to this podcast. Dr. Amanda Concha Holmes, Dr. Rick Stevenson, Dr. Robin Pointer, Turbato Marabu, Dr. Cole Adutula, and to Alachua County Poet Laureate Stanley Richardson, who voiced an excerpt of his poem, The Rebirth of Us. This episode was written by me, Gabriella Paul. Music for this episode was performed by Turbato Marabu. The executive producer is Ryan Vasquez. For animations, classroom resources, and more information on African influence in Florida, please visit wuft.org slash broadcastinghope.